Thanks, Mike. Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here. As we just read, we will be in Psalm 42 this morning. And so as you make your way there on your phone or other uh, device or in a, uh, an actual uh, paper Bible, I want to tell you about three movies that I saw as a kid that uh, kind of scarred me. The first was a little movie you might have heard of called Jaws. The, uh, the second was a movie, I don't even know the name of the movie today, but it involved this giant man-eating alligator that lived in the sewer system and came out and uh, ate kids. Uh, the third was actually one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Lonesome Dove, but it includes a scene of uh, a bunch of water moccasins that uh, bite this Irish kid in the face as he's trying to cross a river. Here's why I mentioned that, because I grew up in Baytown, Texas, which is uh, on a bay, and, uh, and the whole city is kind of filled with bayous. In fact, I grew up about 15 miles away from, quote, the alligator capital of Texas. So that meant that every single body of water that was around me as a kid, was now verboten, was off limits. It was dangerous because of this cinematic scarring that I had as a kid. I assumed if I went into the ocean, I would be eaten by a shark. If I went into one of the lakes or bayous that were around my hometown, I would be eaten by an alligator or at least bitten by a uh, snake. That was best case scenario. I was gonna get beaten, bitten by a snake. It wasn't just that one of those things could possibly happen. I assumed they would happen. It was absolutely inevitable uh, in my mind. So when I was growing up, swimming wasn't this activity that I did because I found it really fun. Uh, instead, the reason that uh, I did it was something that I learned entirely as a survival mechanism. Not just to prevent drowning, but really to prevent being eaten by apex predators in, uh, in the water. So the only reason that I learned how to swim was so that I would be able to get out of the water because the water is the place that you don't want to be. The water wasn't something to enjoy, it was something to escape. So while I was swimming, I couldn't really delight in the act of swimming. I couldn't relish it. I could only think about two things, either get out or get eaten. That was my uh, childhood. Uh, so uh, the reason that I mentioned that is because the way that I thought about water as a kid relates to our psalm today because that's how a lot of people think about suffering, which is a theme of this particular psalm. When most people think about suffering, they ask this question, how do I get out of it? How do I get out of this distressed? I'm depressed. How do I become undepressed? I'm sad. How do I become happy? I'm sick. How do I get well? So as we read the Psalms, in particular Psalms like Psalm 42 that we're looking at today, we read them with an expectation that they're going to help us get out of that pit or whatever it might be. The problem with that is that the goal of suffering throughout the scripture, and in particular throughout the Psalms, and in particular in Psalm 42, the goal of suffering isn't just to get out of the suffering, but rather how to, be learn, how to learn to be faithful in spite of it. So the question to ask in the midst of suffering and the question that this Psalm is going to confront us with is not how do I get out of my circumstance? How do I get out of this pain? But rather, how do I learn to worship in the middle of it? And that's what we'll see in this psalm today. Not necessarily how do I get out of the suffering, but instead, how do I hope and pray and worship while I'm in the midst of it? So let's pray, and then we'll dive in uh, together. 
I'll ask you first just to pray uh, for yourself as you come in and, and you have uh, things that are competing for your affection and your attention this morning that the Lord would uh, give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that would incline uh, to listen. And then would you pray the same thing for those around you, whether they're uh, friends or family or complete strangers, that the Lord would give us corporately as a, uh, as a body uh, a desire to hear and heed his word. And then lastly for me, just for boldness and, uh, and faithfulness to the word. So Father, we bless you this morning because you're good. You're worthy of our praise. Even in the midst of suffering, in the, in the midst of sadness or depression or pain or sickness or disease or uh, the loss of a loved one or whatever it might be, Lord, you are faithful and you are good and you are worthy of all of our affection and all of our attention. So pray that you would help us uh, this morning as we look at uh, this psalm and uh, pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, in just a second, we'll turn our attention to the title of this psalm, but before we get there, I want to give you a couple of facts about this particular psalm, Psalm 42. Uh, the first one is that it's what's called a lament psalm. So we've talked before about how psalms are a particular genre of scripture, but even within the genre of the psalms, there are subgenres, there are subcategories, and, uh, and so Psalm 42 is what's called a lament psalm. We've talked about these a number of times uh, already. And as you may recall, lament psalms are typically marked by sadness. That's what lament entails. But not only sadness, we've also seen that most of the lament psalms are also interspersed with, uh, interspersed with these uh, sort of uh, hints or glimmers uh, of hope. So there's desperation, but there's not true, true despair. There is this hardship, but not hopelessness. So as a result of that, you'll see this interesting sort of outline as we go through Psalm 42 together. Basically, in verses one through four, you'll see this lament, you'll see this longing, you'll see this sadness. And then in verse five, it's almost like he comes up for air and there's this glimmer of hope. Then in verses six through 10, uh, they're again going to, to uh, be this lament. And then verse 11 is this repeated refrain of hope. So kind of think of someone floating in the ocean, probably being attacked by uh, sharks, but that's beside the point. But imagine this image of a man that's bobbing up and down in the ocean. He's plunged under the water and then he comes up for a breath of air. That coming up for air is, the, is this little uh, hint, this glimmer of hope that you'll see in verses five and, uh, and 11. Another interesting fact about this psalm is that most scholars believe that at some point, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, those were actually one unified psalm. And the reason that scholars think that uh, is uh, there's at least three reasons. Number one, many of the, uh, the older Hebrew manuscripts present them as one psalm. So there's not a Psalm 42 and a Psalm 43. Instead, those are combined into one psalm. The second reason is because Psalm 43 has no Hebrew superscript title. 
Uh, and, uh, and that's really surprising in this particular section of the Psalter. And so in your Bible, you might see something that says Psalm 42 begins book two of the Psalter. The, the, the Psalter is uh, arranged in various different uh, books. But in this particular uh, book of the Psalter, most of the Psalms have titles. So you see it not only in Psalm 42, but you'll see it in 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50. I could keep going because in fact, it's not until 71 that you get another psalm without a title. So that's another reason that a lot of scholars think that they were originally uh, one uh, unified psalm. And, uh, and then lastly, there are a number of similarities between the two psalms in regards to shared language. For example, in Psalm 42, 9 that we'll read later, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And you see something similar to that in Psalm 43. Psalm 43, 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? But the biggest similarity between Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 is this common refrain that we're going to encounter twice in our passage today. So Psalms 42, 5 and 11 both say this. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now look over at Psalm 43, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So in other words, these were probably at some point in time, one single psalm. But for some reason, we don't know why and we don't know uh, when, it was broken into two individual psalms. That's a little bit about Psalm 42. Let's now turn our attention to this uh, title, which says, To the Choir Master, A Maskell of the Sons of Korah. One of the things that I want you to remember that we've mentioned a couple of times, we want to come back to it every once in a while, is the fact that psalms are poems. Psalms are poems, even more specifically, they are songs. And why is that important? Because songs and poems affect us in different ways than historical narrative, or different ways than Pauline epistles, for example. Songs are intended to awaken and to articulate and to reform our emotions. If you've ever sung something, and you felt your emotions begin to change as you sang, then you've experienced this reality. When you sing certain songs, they might make you feel like dancing. Other songs might make you feel like crying. Some songs might, might, might make, make you feel like fighting or something like that. Others just make you feel real nostalgic for a particular memory or time in your life. Well, this psalm in particular deals with suffering. And there's, be, uh, there's few better things to do in the midst of suffering, in the midst of when you're depressed or downtrodden than to sing. Even when you don't feel like singing. I would say especially when you don't feel like singing. As we'll see in our psalm today, our feelings are broken. They need to be recalibrated. They need to be reoriented. And singing is one of the primary means that God has given us of accomplishing that of reorienting, of recalibrating uh, our emotions. So we sing as a means of moving our emotions toward God rather than simply following our feelings as if they are innately right or true or good. And then in regards to the type of song, this says that it is a 
maskal. What's a maskal? To be honest with you, scholars don't know. It's probably some musical or liturgical uh, term, but scholars don't know, which is why they haven't translated it. You're just seeing a Hebrew word there, maskal. That said, it most likely means something like a teaching psalm. There's, uh, there, there's some argument uh, to be made that uh, it shares a common root of uh, the word for teaching. So think of this as a song that's intended to teach. Kind of like the, uh, the ABC song is intended to teach you the alphabet or the, the, that old schoolhouse rock song, How a Bill Becomes a Law, teaches you why things move slowly in the government. But with all of that in mind, let's actually look at verses one and two. Psalm 42, one through two says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, as we begin, I want to mention yet another movie that kind of traumatized me as a kid, Bambi. All right, spoiler alert, Bambi, who I always assumed was a doe, but turns out to be a a buck. But Bambi and his mom were frolicking about They're eating grass, they're playing, and all of a sudden, what happens? Gunshots ring out. Bambi's mom is gone, and my childhood innocence is robbed. Well, that's what this psalm kind of reminds me of. It opens with this image, this peaceful, beautiful image of this sweet little deer looking for water, and then suddenly you realize this is not a happy song. After all, it is instead a sad song. Again, it's a song of lament symbolized by this imagery of longing and yearning, which is a pretty common image in the Psalter. Some of the most popular psalms, some of the psalms that you have on your pillows or bumper stickers or whatever it might be, uh, begin with this sense of yearning and longing and desperation. Look at Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 84, one through two, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So these are the kind of verses that we sing songs about. These are the kind of verses we put on our coffee mugs as kind of an irony sort of thing. What better way to say that I'm thirsty for God than putting it on my coffee mug? But what's interesting is that most of the time when we quote or when we think about these types of psalms uh, and this imagery of longing, we actually don't think about it with the right context in mind. We tend to imagine that what's happening in these psalms is that there is someone that's had, that has this vibrant, rich relationship with the Lord and they're simply longing for more. That's actually not what's happening in the context. Notice the imagery. Here in Psalm 42, you see the deer is panting. The deer is thirsting. It's dehydrated. It's stumbling about. It isn't frolicking around an oasis of God's presence. It's in the desert with no sustenance to be found. And why does the psalmist feel this way? Well, from subsequent verses, we'll see that he can't go to the temple. We don't really know why he can't go to the temple. He could be sick or otherwise unclean. Maybe there's a worldwide pandemic and the government has shut down all the temples. But most likely this references this time in which Israel is in exile after the temple has been destroyed. But we're really not sure. The author doesn't give us uh, clues into the actual context of why he can't go to the temple. And as we've seen in a couple of other Psalms, I think this ambiguity regarding the historical context is intentional 
so that the psalm is even more universal in its application. In other words, the fact that the psalmist doesn't give us a reason for his suffering means that regardless of the reasons for your suffering, you can relate. Whatever the circumstances for your suffering, your sadness, your pain, your frustration, your depression, whatever it might be, this psalm applies. It's a one psalm fits all song for the suffering. So the question is, are you longing? Can you relate to this experience? Are you thirsting? Are you suffering? And before you answer that, I want you to notice what the psalmist says he's actually longing for. It isn't so much that he's longing for the gifts of God. Notice what he's longing. He's longing for God himself. He says he wants to see God. He wants to appear before God. In other words, God to the psalmist isn't merely a means to some higher, better end. God himself is the end. God himself is the goal. Deliverance from your circumstance, deliverance from your suffering is a good thing. Healing from physical or emotional pain is a good thing. But the Bible would say there's an even greater and more ultimate good, and that is God himself. God is the reward. God is the true fount of living water. So if you're suffering, if you're longing, what are you longing for? Is your greatest hope, is your greatest prayer, is your more consistent request merely an end to your suffering? Or is it for the strength and the means to worship God in the midst of it? Because this psalm isn't going to provide an end to your distress. Instead, it provides this uh, profound means of pursuing God in spite of those circumstances. So let's keep going. Look at uh, verses three through four. The psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So in verses one through two, we encounter this imagery, and this imagery is of a desert. There's a, a deer, and he's in the desert, and he's dehydrated. He's, he's in this arid land with no water around. So now we see that the psalmist continues to, to press this metaphor, this imagery of water. Notice all of these allusions to water that you're going to see. Tears in this section, that's a form of, uh, of water. You also have waterfalls and breakers and waves that we'll read about in a later section. But even the verb for pour out here, where he talks about how he pours out his soul that uh, suggests this aquatic imagery. That's a, a, a verb that's most often used of actually pouring out water. So the psalmist is desperate for water. And water is seen as this symbol of God's blessing and presence. And yet what does the psalmist say that he tastes instead? He tastes his tears. Rather than receiving nourishment, rather than receiving fluids, he's actually losing even more fluids. As he cries, as he sings, as he worships, he doesn't feel nearer to God as a result of that. He actually feels further. He feels more forsaken. He feels more deserted. He feels more abandoned. And so he's weeping and he is remembering. And what is he remembering? Well, specifically, he says he remembers going to the house of God. Now, when we read the phrase house of God here in Psalm 42 and in other passages, we need to understand exactly what that means. Sometimes you might hear someone say, it's a good day to be in God's house. As if God dwells here, 5600 Virginia Parkway. This is not God's address, right? He doesn't live in this particular building. 
God doesn't dwell in buildings made by hand. Even the highest heavens cannot contain him. So what does the phrase house of God mean in Psalm 42? Well, it's a reference to the Jewish temple. And what was so special about the temple? Well, it was seen as a place where heaven and earth overlap. Where you have heaven and you have earth and the temple is seen as a place where those kind of overlap. It's almost kind of like this divine portal or something like that. It is a place where man meets God. So keep that in mind, that's essential. The temple is seen as a place where heaven and earth overlap and where man meets God. So when we get to the New Testament, we see this reorientation of the imagery of the temple. No longer is the temple, this physical structure that was built there by human hands in Jerusalem. Instead, Jesus Christ is said to be the temple. And by that, I mean he is perfectly God and he is perfectly man. And thus he is the one in whom heaven and earth overlap. And since his body is said to be the temple, there's a sense in which the church, the body of Christ, is a new temple. And by that, I don't mean, again, I don't mean this building. This building is not the church. The building is where the church meets, but we are the church. Those who love and trust Christ are the church. So when the psalmist says that he misses going to the house of God, it isn't the building that he misses. It's what the building represents. And what the building represents is relationship with God, primarily worship, but also community. Notice that implication, that nuance here. Notice the words throng and procession and multitude. So you see here this, uh, another gift in the midst of suffering, and that is community. Corporate worship is a gift. When you're depressed, you often don't want to be around other people. Just like when you're depressed, you might not want to sing, and yet that is exactly what you most need. This is particularly relevant in 2020 when most churches didn't meet for two or more months. Some churches still aren't meeting. Those of you who understand really the nature of the body of Christ, that really believe that this is your spiritual family, for those of you who weren't able to meet for two months or three months or four months or whatever, you sincerely missed it. For you, that break wasn't a chance to catch up on sleep. It wasn't a stroke of good luck so you could finally get around to cleaning your garage or whatever it might be. It wasn't a joy, it was a burden to you. Not gathering with the church was a hardship. You felt the weight of not being around those whom God has given to you for your good and for theirs. So corporate worship is this specific thing that the psalmist is going to mention, but the general idea is simply that he misses a time when he experienced this fullness and joy in the presence of God. For some reason, he is cut off from that. For some reason, he is exiled from that. But the main point here is simply that the psalmist expresses this idea of the importance of remembering, of remembering in the midst of suffering, remembering these past blessings, these past graces of God, including the grace of gathering together to worship. And so he encourages us to look back to the past for encouragement, but he also encourages us to look forward to the future. So let's keep going, and you'll see that in Psalm 42, 5 through 6a, where he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I want to begin just by asking the question, why in the world are the words, and my God, not included in verse 11? but are instead relegated to uh, the first part of verse six. And the answer is, I have absolutely no idea. We've said it before, we've mentioned this a number of times, but just by way of reminder, verse numbers that you see in your Bible, 
Even chapter divisions that you see in your Bible are not actually part of the original manuscripts that were uh, originally inspired by God. In fact, until the 13th century, there were no chapter divisions at all. And until the 16th century, there were no verse divisions. And though they are certainly helpful for us today, sometimes they simply weren't divided in the most helpful place. And this is one of those uh, times. This is one of those uh, examples. So what's the point of this passage? Well, we see here this, uh, another strategy uh, in the midst of suffering. What's the psalmist doing? He's preaching to himself. He's questioning himself. He's preaching truth to himself. And to really understand uh, what's happening here and how profoundly powerful this is, you need to know this basic fact, and that is that no one has ever lied to you as much as you have. Facebook is a close second, all right? But no one has ever lied to you more than you have lied to yourself. Your feelings, your assumptions, your presuppositions, your biases, all of them are broken. All of them are off. One of the biggest lies of our contemporary culture, one of the biggest lies of, uh, of these philosophical trends like uh, existentialism and postmodernism and standpoint theory that we've been talking about as we've discussed justice and race and feminism and abortion and a host of other topics in theological equipping class this semester is the idea that truth is relative and that your feelings determine what is or isn't true. If you feel something to be true, then it must be truth. That you have your truth and I have my truth. Or that there are a bunch of little truths, but no real objective truth. So if you feel something to be true, then it is true. Whether or not it actually correlates to objective reality or not. If you feel like I'm a sexist, then I must be a sexist. If you feel like I'm a racist, I must be a racist. So much of what's happening in our culture today is related to this way of trusting our feelings. Not only is that historically and logically absurd, but it's biblically absurd as well. Rather than trusting your heart, the Bible says it's desperately wicked. That your feelings are not something to be trusted, they're something to be corrected and recalibrated. So imagine this clock that's perpetually broken, not a Steve Jobs clock as Jared called it, but this clock that you have and it's perpetually broken. For whatever reason, it just runs too fast or too slow. So when you look at it, you know you can't really trust it. So what do you do? Well, you have to constantly readjust it. You have to go back to some other more trustworthy uh, timekeeping apparatus in order to recalibrate this Clock. Well, that's the, the, the image that I want you to have for your thoughts and your feelings. So much of our anxiety, so much of our fear, so much of our stress, so much of our depression, so much of our emotional turmoil is because we spend so much time listening to ourselves rather than preaching to ourselves. So in the classic work, Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this very psalm and this very reality and he wrote this which is very insightful. He said, uh, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts to come to you uh, the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's, he means the psalmist, treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts to himself. 
Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. So here's my question. Do you do this? Do you preach to yourself? Do you talk to yourself? Not like a weirdo mumbling in the corner at your you know, office Halloween party or something like that. But the good kind of talking to yourself. Do you preach truth to yourself? Do you remind yourself over and over and over again of these truths of scripture that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is utterly sovereign, that Christ has taken away your condemnation, that Christ will return and make all things new, that the spirit helps us in our weakness, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to come and so forth. So are you talking to yourself? Because if not, then you're simply drifting passively along, listening to your fickle feelings wherever they may lead. And the psalmist recognized that though his feelings are real and though your feelings are real, they're also false. He feels forsaken, but he isn't forsaken. He feels abandoned, but he isn't abandoned. How does he know? Because those feelings are false. And how does he know that they're false? Because he measures them and evaluates them on the basis of his theology. In other words, it's theology which provides the buoy amidst the storm. It's truth, it's doctrine, it's dogma, it's creed. Theology is not a bad word, it's a good word. Theology is the kindling that we gather around our hearts for the stormy days ahead. So he says, hope in God. He interrupts his own complaining. He interrupts his own feelings and he tells it this, hope in God, or that could also be translated as wait on God, which is this huge theme in scripture. We see Israel waiting in slavery. Israel waiting in the wilderness to enter the promised land. Israel waiting in the period of the exile, waiting in the intertestamental period for the coming of the anointed one. We see the disciples waiting between Good Friday and Easter Sunday and waiting for the spirit to fall at Pentecost. And we see the church waiting even now for the return of Christ. So even now, Christian, as we're suffering, as we're experiencing distress and anxiety and pain and turmoil, whatever it is, we wait. And by that I mean we hope, we pray, we sing, we cry, we worship, we preach truth to ourselves. Let's keep going. Verses 6b through 7. It says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So you see now the, the, the imagery of water shifts from not having enough to having too much. The imagery of water shifts from being utterly devoid of water to being overwhelmed by it and immersed in it but not in a refreshing way. Instead, the imagery is one of chaos. We've mentioned this a number of times before, but water in most ancient culture and particularly in Hebrew culture was seen as chaotic. It was seen as an enemy. It was seen as something destructive. Why is that? Well, at creation, the waters are seen as chaotic and God has to bring order to the waters. And then a few chapters later, something happens. The entire earth is flooded with water as a sign of God's judgment. And then in the very next book, the book of Exodus, the Red Sea encloses upon the Egyptian army and swallows them up. So you see water oftentimes is gonna have this imagery, not of this, uh, this good connotation, but rather this connotation of danger and chaos. 
So look in Psalm 69, verses one through three. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. This is not literal. This is not someone who's actually drowning and they grab a stylus and a scroll and they're riding it as they're bobbing there in the sea. This is a metaphor. This is figurative imagery of this water as chaos. So you notice that same contrast that we see in Psalm 42. The author is immersed in water and yet at the same time he's utterly parched. You see that contrast there like being afloat in a sea with nothing to drink save the salty water below. So the ocean in scripture, the sea in scripture is not a place for fun. It's a place for death. And all of those who like me saw Jaws as a kid say amen. Now in this passage you're going to encounter a couple of place names. You see Jordan, you see Hermon, you see Mount Mizar. When you see Jordan there, I don't want you to think of the modern country of Jordan. Instead, this probably refers to the river, the Jordan River. As for Hermon, Mount Hermon was a mountain that was north of Israel that's associated with the source of the Jordan River. Uh, Mount Hermon was this mountain, although in uh, Hebrew, what it actually says there in Psalm 42 is not Hermon singular, but Hermon's plural. So it probably refers not just to Mount Hermon, but to the entire mountain range that is associated with that particular mountain. And then you see Mount Mitzar, which scholars really have no clue where that actually was, but was most likely a particular mountain in the, uh, the Hermons. But uh, that particular reference has been lost to antiquity. But again, the point of this section is that the psalmist is gonna feel overwhelmed in this flood of chaos and suffering. As the word biblical commentary says, the psalmist had longed for the waters of refreshment, but somehow, in the effort to remember God, he had unleashed the primeval waters of chaos, which seemed to depict so powerfully his terrible situation. Let's keep going to the last part of his uh, lament that you see in verses eight through 10. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my, wo- my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So you'll see multiple characters that are speaking here. God is commanding his steadfast love. The psalmist is pouring out his feelings. And then you see these adversaries that are taunting him. And notice how they're taunting him. Notice how they're mocking him. They're asking him the very questions that we earlier read that he had asked himself. Where is your God? Again, he feels forsaken. Yet I want you to notice something. Even here, you begin to see these hints of hope. The author is going to mention here God's steadfast love. The Hebrew word there is chesed, this, uh, this word associated with God's covenant mercy and his faithfulness. And this faithfulness is on full display in calling God his rock. Notice there, I say to God, my rock. By rock, he doesn't just mean that God is strong. Sometimes that's the, the imagery of a rock in scripture is its strength, but that's not what he actually means here. Although that is certainly true, that God is strong. But the reference here, I think, is instead to the fact that God is unchanging, that God is unmoving, that in the midst of this sea that is tossing and turning, that God is this steady rock. He is this outcropping upon which the uh, psalmist can rest. So again, many of our struggles, 
many of our struggles to feel comforted and encouraged by and confident in God's love are related to the fact that we think of God's love as if it's really similar to our own. We imagine God's love through the lens of our own experience of love. The problem with that is your experience of love is fickle, even towards those that you love with all of your heart, like your spouse or your kids. Our love ebbs and flows, but God's love does not ebb and flow because God himself doesn't ebb and flow. In fact, God doesn't change, and that's really good news for us. So we read in Scripture, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Notice this, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. And notice the result, the implication of that. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Psalm 102, 25 through 27 contrasts all of creation with creator. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? In Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So God doesn't change. Indeed, he cannot change. We've mentioned this before, but there are a number of things that God can't do. And I don't mean by that, that God can't make a rock big enough that he can't lift it or something like that. I mean, there are certain things God can't do like he can't lie. He can't sin. He can't cease to exist. He can't cease to be God. And he can't change. Theologians call this doctrine the doctrine of the immutability of God, which doesn't mean that you can't mute God, although that's true also. But mutable means change, like in the word mutation. So there is no change in God. And if I asked you just theoretically whether or not God changes, you would probably say no. You probably intellectually believe that, but when it really comes down to it, I don't think you actually believe it. In fact, I don't think I actually believe it. Deep down, this is one of the most difficult doctrines in all of Scripture to actually embrace, and yet it's most, one of the most important doctrines for us to uh, embrace. We tend to think of God because we tend to imagine Him in our image rather than imagining ourselves as created in His, his image. We tend to think of God as changing because we change. All of our experiences are experiences of change. So as a result of that, we think of, his, we think of his feelings for us as changing. And why do they change? They change on the basis of our behavior, on the basis of how well we're doing. And, and thus we think of his willingness to help us to some degree as being dependent on something in us rather than something in God, something in his unchanging character and will. And if that's the way that you think of God, you think of him changing in response to you, that is terribly depressing because if God's love for me is dependent on me, then woe is me because I'm broken. But thankfully, the Bible says it's not dependent on me and therein lies my hope. So Herman Bovink, a great reformed thinker of the, the late 19th century, I've been reading his works lately and he wrote this regarding the immutability of God. He says the difference between the creator and the creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. All that is creaturely 
is in process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving in search of rest and satisfaction and finds this rest only in him who is pure being without becoming. This is why in scripture, God is so often called the rock. Then he quotes a number of passages there and then he picks it up back up. We humans can rely on him. He does not change in his being, knowing, or willing. He eternally remains who he is. Every change is foreign to God. In him there is no change in time, for he is eternal, nor in location, for he is omnipresent, nor in essence, for he is pure being. In other words, the unchangeability of God, the immutability of God is good news. In fact, it's the best of news because it means that his love and his faithfulness do not change. They're not rooted in us and how well we're doing. They're rooted in him and he never changes. They're rooted in his will and his character, which are eternal. And therein lies our eternal rest. So in light of this, in the midst of suffering, while being assaulted by the flood and chaos of external or internal suffering uh, suffering and circumstances, this message of the steadfast love of God and the unchanging nature of God is not only a buoy, but also a rock, a refuge, an anchor of hope. God's love and his promises and his character do not change. Indeed, they cannot change. By his very nature, he would cease to be God if he changed. So we can trust and hope in him. And speaking of hope, let's look at this refrain one more time from verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So yet again, we see this theme of preaching to yourself, of taking your thoughts captive, of doubting yourself, of doubting your thoughts, of doubting your feelings, and then subjecting them to the authority of the word of God. And as the psalmist does this not once, but twice, and indeed in Psalm 43, we'll do it a third time, So we see that preaching to ourselves is not something we merely do once, but again and again and again and again. This is a lifelong process for us. As long as we are being sanctified, we need to continue to engage in this discipline of preaching truth to ourselves and and, uh, recalibrating our feelings. Like the woman who knocks on the door in the parable until she's finally heard. So we preach to ourselves and we pray and we worship in the midst of suffering until we're finally delivered. Now make no mistake, we will be delivered. Maybe not in this life, that's what's wrong with prosperity gospel and over-realized eschatology and so forth, but surely in the life that is to come, we will be delivered. So maybe today you feel dry, you feel abandoned, you feel thirsty, you feel depressed. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the waves and currents of some sort of distress or sorrow or suffering or sickness or whatever it might be. The psalm doesn't necessarily tell you how to get out of your circumstances or suffering. Suffering isn't like this escape room. Have you ever done one of those where you have to figure out all of these clues and once you figure out the clues, you get out of the room. There's no seven steps to get out of suffering. There's no secret Bible code to decipher that will instantly cure your depression and remove the pain and make you happy and chipper all the time. Scripture often doesn't tell us how to get out of suffering, but it does tell us what to do in the midst of suffering. It tells us how to worship even while sorrowful. So in this psalm, you see that while uh, distressed, while suffering, that you should sing. 
that you should worship, that you should gather with others, that you should pray, that you should remember the past graces and goodness of God, that you should preach truth to yourself, that you should hope in the character of an unchanging God and the promise of future grace. You should do these things even when you don't feel like it and especially when you don't feel like it. Because, the Bible, uh, because though the Bible doesn't tell us how to get out of the suffering, it does tell us that suffering doesn't ultimately win. That one day there will be no suffering because all of the sources of your suffering have been conquered by Christ. That's why you preach not only the past goodness of God, but also future promises of God to yourself. Because all of the sources, all of the causes, all of the reasons that you suffer, whether that's sickness or sadness or disease or death or demonic attack or whatever it might be, all of them are defeated. All of them are temporary. Christ has overcome and will one day uh, come back. And we will experience the fullness of that reality when he returns and makes all things new. So the point of Psalm 42 is to take heart. And hope in God, for you shall again praise him, your salvation and your God. Let's pray. Father, I confess that in this room, uh, there is hardship. There's pain, there's distress, there's sadness, there's fear, there's anxiety. And so I'm grateful for Psalm 42, which is broad and universal enough in its scope to be applicable to any of our tears and any of our fears and any of our frustrations. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord, not necessarily to just long to be out of the suffering, but to learn how to worship and to enjoy you and to be faithful in the midst of it. And I also pray, come Lord Jesus, because that's our ultimate hope, when you will remove all of the, uh, the, the sources of our suffering that you've already conquered in your son. And so we pray these things with hope and expectation in his name. Amen.